You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week we explore some aspect of the past, present or future of intelligence and espionage. Please support the show for free by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you could leave a single sentence, it will help other listeners find us. It can literally take less than a minute. Thank you, friend. Coming up next on SpyCast. Ultimately, we did recover two Picassos that were stolen in Paris worth about $60 million, and four uh, paintings stolen from the Nice Museum at gunpoint that we were able to recover at the same time through that group. So these intelligence agencies all work together. This week's guest is Robert Whitman, the founder of the FBI's art crime team and a man dubbed the most famous art detective in the world. He's worked all over the world, spending years undercover and has recovered hundreds of millions of dollars worth of stolen paintings and other cultural artefacts. And you thought your career was interesting. Bob has written two books, Priceless, How I Went Undercover to Rescue the World's Stolen Treasures, and The Devil's Diary, Alfred Rosenberg and the Stolen Secrets of the Third Reich. For more information on this episode or on Bob, go to our webpage at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast for extended show notes, links to further resources and a full transcript. In this episode we discuss how the FBI's art crime team was formed, Bob's time living and working undercover abroad, what it's like to have your life threatened, the intelligence angle to investigating stolen art and Bob's year-long undercover search for the still-missing Rembrandt painting The Storm in the Sea of Galilee, the Dutch master's only seascape that was stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston in 1990. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006, we are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Thanks for joining me this morning. Great. Yeah, happy to be here. And I wondered if you could just tell us how you came to join the FBI. When did you join? What was the motivation behind it? Well, I was always interested in the FBI because they were the preeminent uh, uh, group of law enforcement that protected civil rights and protected uh, 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 people who, you know, needed protection as far as uh, different cultures and nationalities were concerned. My mother was Japanese, and uh, we came to the United States. I was two years old back in when I was born in Tokyo, 
And I came here when I was two years old, and my uh, my mother, it was very close to the Second World War, the end of the Second World War. So basically, when, around 1960, I remember some some prejudice type of things happening with my mother, and I always thought the FBI was the, uh, like I said, the preeminent law enforcement agency to protect people. Not only that, I was always interested in, in the 19, oh, it was the 1980s when I joined up, 1988, and there was a great television show called Miami Vice. And there was these two guys, Crockett and Tubbs, <laughs> and they looked like they were having so much fun down, down in Miami. And I wanted Don to do Johnson. that too. Yeah, Don Johnson, that's right. I wanted to do that too. So uh, I joined up, and what happened was I went in through Baltimore, and of course my first office wasn't Miami. I ended up in Philadelphia, which is a little bit different from Miami. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so you grew up in Baltimore? Yes, I grew up in Baltimore. Okay, wow. So basically you saw the FBI as the good guys? Yeah, they always were. Yeah, the, uh, there was a great TV show with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. called the FBI. And uh, came on Sunday nights after uh, or before Ed Sullivan. <laughs> so you could watch that before you watch the, uh, you know, the uh, debut of the Beatles. So anyway, it was an uh, interesting show as well. And growing up and seeing all that, I always thought it was interesting. Also, there was a, a person who lived across the street from me when I was a child. And uh, I played with his sons, and we had fun together and all that. And he was an FBI agent in Baltimore. And I always admired him. So I thought it would be a great job to get. And was it what you expected it to be? Oh, much better. Really? Uh, yeah, I was there from 1988 to 2008. Uh, during that period of time, I think I was involved in the recoveries of more than $300 million worth of stolen art and cultural property. I didn't plan it that way. As I said, I wanted to be uh, Don Johnson on, uh, <laughs> on my advice. <laughs> but uh, when I first came to Philadelphia, I was uh, given two cases involving thefts from the Museum of Muse uh, Pennsylvania at the University of Pennsylvania and also from the uh, Rodin Museum. And as a result of those investigations, I continue to do art theft investigations, ultimately becoming probably the uh, bureau expert in how to do uh, cultural property, cultural heritage investigations and recoveries. So you went from uh, hopes of South Beach and you ended up in South Philly? Yeah. <laughs> More like North Philly. North a little Philly. bit of South Philly, too. <laughs> so what what was that like? Tell, tell us a little bit more about the Philadelphia that you encountered when you first went there. Oh, well, 1988, uh, you know, the uh, move the debacle had just occurred about a year, a year and a half before. That was a very bad time for cities in America, Baltimore included, Philadelphia, New York. Uh, it was before the Renaissance, so to speak, that started around 1992. So when I got here, it was almost as if, um, you know, it was more of a containment strategy. So you could sit in a, in a you know, a squad car on main roads and listen to, a, you know, gunshot. You could listen to these types of things, but there was no response to it. You go on to be the Bureau's expert in art crime, stolen cultural property. Is this something that you came to the Bureau with? Had you done it in college or something? Had you, did you have an interest in it or did you, did, you, uh, did you pick it up? It's interesting you say have something you did in college. No, I never stole any artifacts in college. No, no. <laughs> I mean studied art or, or had an interest in art. No, I understand. No, what happened was uh, I was I was given those two cases. Uh, I was I was assigned to a property crime squad, which at that time in Philadelphia was a, a task force squad that in, that was doing investigations in truck hijackings. Because Philadelphia is a, is a main thoroughfare for I ninety five, 
from New York all the way down to Florida. So a lot of uh, loads of cigarettes, alcohol were all being stolen. So that squad was doing that type of uh, type of work. And these two art theft cases came in. And my partner and I, who was my trading agent, we uh, we started, we did the art crime stuff. So he was doing those investigations. When I got here, I worked with him. And as I say, the one, the one theft was a crystal ball from the University of Pennsylvania Museum. It was from the Asian Gallery. And in fact, it's the second largest crystal ball in the world. It was collected by, from the uh, Dowager Empress of Zixi of China and uh, was uh, collected for the museum. The, the piece weighs more than 50 pounds, and that had been stolen. And we were able to recover that. And the other piece that was stolen at gunpoint from the Rodin Museum was the man with the mask with the broken nose which is a very famous Rodin sculpture. So that was taken. Within a year, we were able to recover both of those pieces. And as a result, the FBI sent me to art school at the Barnes Foundation. And then I went for diamond school at the GIA in Santa Monica and uh, a jewelry theft investigation in school teaching uh, at the Zales Corporation in Texas. So once I was trained up, basically they utilized me. And when you say they sent you to art school, what, what do you mean? Well, I did a year of study at the Barnes Foundation. Basically, it was one day a week for four hours. Um, and it was actually a, a course on learning how to create art. It was how to identify art. And the foundation is world-renowned. It's a famous uh, museum. It's got, uh, you know, more, I think there's more Cezannes in the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia than there are in any single place in the world, even in France. So, you know, more than 60, I think more than 70 Renoirs. So ultimately, you know, as a uh, law enforcement officer, it was great to be able to see the difference, the technique of the painting, the genre, the colors, uh, to be able to tell the difference, say, between a Picasso and a Renoir. I mean, you know, for the art historian or someone cultured in art, that's hilarious. But for a law enforcement officer, it's a big deal. So as a result, uh, going to the Barnes Foundation and being there for a year like that and, and identifying art, it helped me to identify these different uh, artists. So you go to Philadelphia and then you spend uh, a few years there. So you don't get sent to another, you know, city or field office and the FBI. Then you go in to be an art theft specialist. Is that correct? Well, I never left Philadelphia. I was there for 20 years from 1988 to 2008. That was my uh, uh, assigned office. But ultimately, I'd worked in 20 different countries. So although we recovered art in the United States, we also recovered a lot of material in cultural heritage from Peru, Ecuador, um, Spain. I did undercover operations in Spain, um, Denmark, Copenhagen, uh, France, uh, Germany. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, all over the world. Wow. And what was the the state of this field in the FBI when you joined it, it was basically non-existent. Um, a stolen work of art was just treated like a stolen car or a stolen piece of family jewellery or something like that. It was just a, a regular um, theft and it was treated as such. Well, ultimately, uh, you have to think about it as property crime. Right now, I guess the lowest uh, priority in the FBI hierarchy of priorities, and I guess this is below the lowest, is property crime. <laughs> you know, uh, when it comes to law enforcement, there's no difference really between a Chevrolet and a Monet. They're both the same. They're just a piece of property. Of course, you know, when you look at it from the viewpoint of first value, but also from the viewpoint of cultural heritage, it becomes a whole different story. It's much more, uh, I think there's much more value in cultural heritage than there is, say, just plain property. 
So at the time when I started, it was considered a property crime, and it was in, investigated just like an auto theft. Um, we sort of made that professional. In 2005, I created the uh, National Art Crime Team for the FBI, which has more than 20 members today. Uh, I think they've recovered more than uh, $700 million worth of stolen art and cultural property since the beginning, and uh, that's because we trained them in how to do these types of investigations. I'm just trying to understand how much the regular investigative tools and uh, tradecraft you use and the FBI for other types of theft, um, how much of what you would have to do to, to investigate stolen art or cultural property, was that a different kind of skill set or was it just applying the same skill set to a different field? Well, there's a different type of skill set. Uh, in that, you know, you're not going to go into a museum and spread fingerprint powder all over the place. You have to be, <laughs> it has to be more, a little more delicate. Also, the, uh, the, the fences, the people who are going to buy and sell stolen art are different from standard, uh, you know, body shop, auto shop, uh, you know, uh, cutters. So that's a whole different situation. There's different types of art crime. Uh, just in general, the cultural heritage market, the, the art market is about a $200 billion industry every year. That's how much gets bought and sold legitimately all over the world. The United States is the number one con uh, consumer country in the world for art, cultural property, and antiques. Almost uh, $80 billion gets bought and sold here, 40% of the market. Uh, about $6 billion is the illicit cultural property market. That's the criminal art crime market. And that includes things like theft, but it also includes frauds, forgeries, and fakes, which today is probably 75% of the crime that occurs in that market. So, you know, investigating a art forgery is different from investigating an art theft. In an art theft investigation, you're gonna do a standard forensic investigation. You're gonna be checking for surveillance tapes. You're gonna be checking for, you know, footprints, hair and fibers, fingerprints, all of that forensic material. In an art fraud or art forgery investigation, it's a whole different type of uh, investigation. And what kind of people are we, talking about here i understand it's a variety of there's a certain amount of variety of different types of people but when you're looking at stolen art uh, forged art etc are we talking about different types of people so you know if it's uh, a, a gas station hold up you know uh, someone with a born to lose tattoo drive you know <laughs> driving a particular type of vehicle are we are we talking like higher end criminals wearing cravats and uh, having master's degrees and stuff or is it basically the same people but they're just stealing something different no, it's, uh, it's, it's everything you just said, all of the above. It's everything from, you know, the born-to-lose guys who are out there doing armed robberies up to the guys with the cravats with PhDs in art history. You know, we found through our research at the FBI in all the cases that had been investigated up to that point around the early 2000s, 90% of art thefts in museums and institutions in the United States were inside jobs. So wow. it's very seldom that you 90%. get 90%. Wow. 90%. Yeah, it's very seldom that you get, you know, these armed robberies or the burglary from the outside. It's it's usually 9 times out of 10 it's going to be someone who has the keys to the kingdom. I mean, a very good example of that right now is the problems that the British Museum is going through in London where one of their curators is looking, they're looking at maybe 1500 pieces that he's taken over the course of the last 10-15 years. So that's the same thing that kind of happens in the United States. It's always, it's generally, it's an inside job. Now, the ones that get the, all, the, all the publicity 
are the outsiders. Those are the armed robberies. Okay, the, the, the Edward Monk uh, scream painting in Oslo, which was stolen at a, a gunpoint. Uh, a case I did in Stockholm, Sweden, involving $42 million worth of paintings that were stolen at gunpoint. These are the worldwide headlines. But it's usually an inside job where someone is actually stealing right out from under everyone's noses. It's like those old-fashioned movies, like the Pink Panther and stuff, or to catch a thief, uh, yeah. you know, sophisticated, I, sneaking in on on ropes and grabbing diamonds and not setting off the alarms and stuff. But that's that's the the, the minority. You're going all the way back to Cary Grant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> or Pierce Brosnan and Thomas Crown Affair. Uh, these are these are uh, you know the Hollywood art. These that they uh, how they portray it. So, that, so that's quite interesting. Can you can you share with our listeners an example of one that you worked on where it was an inside job? Sure. Uh, we have one case, it was just in Philadelphia, where uh, we were called by the curator from the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Now, the Historical Society was started in uh, the first 10 years of 1800, eight, between 1801 and 1810. And uh, what had happened was, uh, throughout all these centuries, families had been giving important pieces Usually, um, U.S. historical items to the uh, to the museum. Uh, they had more than at that point thirteen thousand items in their collection. So the curator called us and said she was missing three swords and a long rifle. And these pieces she had seen, she moved them off of display and put them on a table to be you know uh, put away for later. After a few weeks, she was checking the table and things were gone. So, I mean, these were pretty large items, valued at about $750,000. So we conducted an investigation where we went in, and uh, we spoke to over 100 people. We talked to everybody who was at the museum. Uh, basically, we had no leads. We only missed one person, and that was a guy named, um, um, oh, I'm trying to remember, Ernie, a guy named Ernie, who was the chief maintenance man. And, but he had been there for 20 years, totally trusted. He was sick that day, so we, we didn't get a chance to speak to him. We'll get it to him later. Uh, we we did a investigation at a Civil War show. These these rifles, this rifle and these swords were from the Civil American Civil War, and they were considered they're called presentation swords. So we went to the, this uh, Civil War show in Richmond, Virginia, and we met with a, a person who had written a book about the uh, presentation swords of Pennsylvania, and uh, we spoke to him about the theft. He said that uh, he didn't know anything about these swords. He said, but there was a, a man who had called him who was a dealer. And this dealer said that it was a suspicious individual came into his shop up in the Poconos, well north of Philadelphia, and said that he had a presentation sword that was owned by a major that was uh, in the Union Army during the Mexican War, American Wars uh, in the 1840s. Uh, but the, the dealer said that was strange to him because he thought that that piece was in the Historical Society collection. So they, they checked it. They uh, looked it up, and it was uh, listed in, in the book as part of that collection. So when I got back to Philadelphia, I called and found out that they told me that they still had it. So I guess it was kind of a mistake on the information, but I still was able to get that person's name and address. That was the person who had walked in and, you know, mentioned this to the dealer. So uh, my partner and I went and visited him. He lived uh, a few minutes south of Philadelphia in Delaware County. Uh, we went. We uh, ultimately went to the house. There was no one there. We then followed up. He was an electrician, and we went down to his electrical shop, and we asked for him. They called him in off the road. He came in. His name was George. George walks into the shop, and we say, George, we're here to talk to you about the swords. So George, he, he looks down at the ground, 
and then looks back at me, right in my eyes, and he says, Ernie told you, didn't he? And we said, of course. Why else would we be there? If Ernie hadn't told us, we wouldn't have known about you. And he said, oh, I knew he'd speak. I knew he'd talk. I knew he'd tell. So he says, yeah, I had the swords. So as it turns out, we went back to George's house to, to reclaim those swords. We went into a, a bedroom that he was in, and he had knocked out one of the walls for the two-bedroom, and between the two bedrooms in a, in a three-bedroom townhouse, and he had one of the finest collections of U.S. historical items, more than 200 pieces. Remember, we're looking for four pieces. He had more than 200. And as a result, uh, he had been stealing from the Historical Society for seven years. And Ernie was sneaking one piece at a time out and selling it to George for a total of about $7,000. But as it turned out, all the material together was worth over $2.5 million. So he had more than 200 pieces they had stolen. One of, the, one of the really interesting pieces was a rifle carried at Harper's Ferry by John Brown's men. And another one was a, uh, a tea caddy. It was an ivory tea caddy that George Washington had the winter of Valley Forge. It was in his tent. <laughs> so it ended up in George's bedroom. That's incredible. So it's an amazing you know, thing. That, uh, that was the largest recovery of stolen U.S. historical items at one time in history. That's 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 really incredible, and I I think you know so Philadelphia is a city really rich in cultural history, but you uh, head up the the national art crime unit, so you're doing stuff across the United States. Yes, uh, yeah. well, internationally, all over the world. Internationally, I, as I say, I worked on cases in twenty countries. It was interesting because working on those cases, you know, you're not a law enforcement officer in Spain. You're not a law enforcement officer in Denmark. You basically are a citizen, American citizen, and you're, you're you know, helping the police, cooperating with the police there. You know, one of the better, better cases we did uh, undercover, and I worked on a lot undercover. Some uh, Between 1995 and 2008, I was undercover somewhere in the world uh, working cases. So uh, one of the best ones that we did using the tradecraft and all that. I used to teach tradecraft at the uh, undercover school in Quantico for FBI agents. One of the best ones was a case involving an armed robbery of the, uh, of the National Museum in Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, three individuals went in on uh, December 23rd, right after 5 p.m. It was dark. It was cold. These guys went in with machine guns. They put everybody on the floor. And then two of the guys ran around the museum. They stole three items two by Renoir, two paintings, and then one by Rembrandt. Total value of that heist that night was $42 million. Biggest uh, art crime in Swedish national history. So they set off two car bombs on the main roads leading to the museum, which was at the end of a peninsula. And you got a picture, it's dark, cold. Two car bombs go off, they put tax strips down. So the police and fire department couldn't respond for 40 minutes. It stopped them. They made their getaway by jumping into a high-speed boat right there at the pier where the museum is. And then they made their way up into the harbor. So it's kind of like the Italian job, the movie, you know, on this robbery. Really a, a well-done robbery, well thought out. Uh, they made one mistake. They, When they pulled their boat over, they were seen by a fisherman who was out that evening. And uh, he saw these three guys jump out of their boat and run up into the city carrying these bags. He didn't think much of it, but the next morning when, of course, the whole, all the newspapers and all the radio and television was talking about this huge heist, he uh, called the police and gave them the information about the boat and the men that he saw. 
So the police followed up, the Stockholm City Police, and they were able to discover that the boat had been sold about six weeks before and that the individuals who bought it used a credit card. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not always the smartest, you know, <laughs> thieves. If they, if they didn't do these things, we'd never catch them, I guess, right? Mm. Uh, so uh, they were able to identify 10 individuals who were, they thought were involved in this heist. They did recover one of the Renoirs. Uh, a piece called The Conversation, very nice little painting. Uh, and they put all 10 on trial. Seven were convicted, three were acquitted. Fast forward now, that was 2001, a year after the heist. Fast forward to 2005, during an investigation in Los Angeles, the FBI had a uh, drug investigation on a Bulgarian national who had arrest warrants all over the world. And he had been involved in crime all his life. Well, this individual was talking about, his name was Boris, he was talking about uh, selling a painting, which was a Renoir stolen from Sweden. So there was only one missing, and that was the one from the Swedish National Museum heist. So ultimately, the, uh, the FBI were able to do a surveillance. They were able to recover the uh, Renoir uh, from the, uh, the Bulgarian national named Boris, and uh, they got the painting back worth about $4 million dollars. The interesting, interesting thing part was, though, that Boris actually knew where the Rembrandt was. So we had the two Renoirs. Okay, they're recovered, $7 million, but you got the $35 million Rembrandt still out there, and it was still in Sweden. So as it turns out, Boris was willing to cooperate to get a downward departure on sentencing for his drugs. So uh, we started an operation called Operation Bullwinkle, which— uh, it's kind of interesting. We use that name because you had Boris the Bulgarian, you know, <laughs> and Natasha. Maybe your listeners can remember Rocky the Squirrel and Bullwinkle the Moose. Well, this was uh, Boris. And so now you know how the FBI makes these names up, right, for these operations. So we did Operation Bullwinkle, which was an undercover operation, to go to Sweden and Denmark to do, uh, you know, to, to meet with the criminals, offer 250000 in cash, and then do the deal. Ultimately, I was the undercover on the case because I knew the tradecraft. And so I went and worked undercover with the uh, Swedish National Police and the, and the Danish National Police. And uh, we were able to uh, uh, meet with these individuals and uh, uh, do a by-bus, basically, of the painting by, after convincing them that I was with the uh, Russian mob and that I was a, an authenticator that they hired to do this deal. So ultimately, they, they did bring the painting to us. And, uh, you know, we uh, were able to recover that as well. So the Swedes were happy to get their $35 million painting back. And how did you get brought into that, Robert? Was this um, collaboration or, or helping out external partner? Or the, help us understand how the FBI got involved in a case in Sweden? Well, the, uh, the FBI got involved in that case because, first of all, we had the uh, cooperator out of Los Angeles. So we did have a tie into, you know, being able to help the, uh, the Swedes. Secondly, uh, we have a program at the FBI called the Foreign Police Cooperation Program. So as a result, you know, we try to help na nations and police, national police departments in their investigations because, you know, what we do for them, they do for us. So, you know, we have negotiation, not negotiation, but contacts, communication with the embassies. And, you know, there's times when we need their help. You know, with, uh, you know, Americans that are creating crimes, organized crime in the United States that are working in their countries. So as a result of, you know, of that, we, we work together. So we help them, they help us. It's foreign police cooperation, and, and it works out really well, both diplomatically. And uh, uh, it's interesting when we do uh, spy kind of work. It's, it's not necessarily as a spy for 
information for, you know, like like for the CIA. It's more of a, a undercover act activity to stop criminal, uh, you know, criminal proceedings. It sounds really fascinating. So, would you? So you you go through these courses, you build up this unit, but I'm assuming that you work with. Uh, curators in museums or people at Christie's or other people that can evaluate whether something's the real deal or not. Help us understand the, where the tentacles of an investigation of this type might reach. Oh, it goes all over the world. I mean, you know, when I did that case um, with the Rembrandt, uh, I was at the, Univers I was at the uh, Philadelphia Museum of Art looking at comparable pieces. That particular Rembrandt was done when he was 24 years old in 1630. Uh, it was it was painted on copper, which is a very very which was a very very valuable metal at the time. Very few things were done on copper, and he used gold flecks in the paint. And the the obvious use of the uh, chiaroscuro, which he invented, Rembrandt invented, which is a shadow and light on portraits. So being able to identify that painting was important and seeing others like it became very important as well. So I had some familiarization with what, uh, what I was looking at. You, know, you have to be able to speak about the painting to these thieves. Now, they had no interest in the art part of it. They just wanted the money. But just to show you, at one point when I was looking at it, I had to authenticate it. And the way I did that was I had gotten great photographs from the museum which showed the back of the painting. And many times the backs of these artworks are as important as the fronts because there's a lot of information about provenance, about the history of the artwork, and also about how it's been, you know, framed and put together. So in this particular case, there were four screws that held the painting into the frame. And I could see that the screws had been turned on certain angles and they were still the same from the photograph to what we saw when we received the painting itself. So I could tell it was never taken out of the frame. And at one point I said to them, hey, you never even took it out of the frame, did you? And they looked at me and they were aghast. They said, of course not. You know, <laughs> like it's a Rembrandt, right? So it just goes to show that they appreciated it. They knew what they had was a, a very valuable piece of cultural heritage, you know, valuable to millions of people. And I even said to them, I said, are you, are you art lovers? Because I was surprised <laughs> they were so, you know, adamant about it. And they said, no, we just want the money. But it goes to show, even they knew. They had an appreciation from what it was. So would you do a lot of the evaluation yourself? You would be the person that would decide whether or not it was the real deal, or, or did you have to sometimes go to external uh, people to consult? Generally speaking, from what I saw, when it came to uh, stolen property, um, it was usually the real deal. Nobody was trying to steal a painting and then put, sell a fake back, you know, as the painting at that moment undercover. Um, now, that did happen. There was a dealer in New York City who was buying Mark Chagall paintings. And what he would do is have them repainted, you know, copied. And then uh, what he would do is turn around and sell the copies as the original with the original paperwork. See, though, he would get the paperwork with the originals, and he'd have that with it. Then he'd sell the copies, say, in Hong Kong, <laughs> and while, while keeping the ones in New York, you know, at the same time. Ultimately, he made a mistake and sold both at the same time. So it didn't work out for him. <laughs> so that happens. But we knew, generally speaking, undercover operations, when we're you know, making these kind of deals, that they're real. Now, when it comes to frauds and forgeries, then you have to get the opinion of experts. And the reason for that is because my opinion wouldn't fly in court. It wouldn't be the opinion of an expert, uh, just an investigator. So the expert would have to come in and testify. 
Okay. And what kinds of people would come in to testify? Would it be curators and people from, so yeah, the auction houses and so forth, or professors from academia, or all of the above? That would be all of the above. Whatever the situation was, usually we didn't use uh, uh, auction house people because they, they're basically, um, you know, there to buy and sell. But uh, professors from universities, you know, uh, experts in Rembrandt, that type of thing, we would pull those people in. Archaeologists. Usually we didn't have problems with paintings. It was usually with archaeological material to prove it was true, real stuff, you know, because there's a, a lot of fakes out there when it comes to archaeological material. So we're talking like Greek vases and, and so forth? Yeah, you know, uh, they've been reproduced for years. You know, the Romans reproduced the Greeks. <laughs> so there's a lot of uh, uh, Roman statues that are done in the Greek style that, you know, people could make a mistake. And, uh, you know, the Greek statues could be worth a little bit more money on the open market than the, than the Roman because it's just the way it is. So, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, lot of reproductions. I would say people should be very careful if they're going to be collectors that get involved in uh, buying those types of uh, archaeological or, or, you know, uh, historical artifacts. And when they're buying those types of things, are they are they generally pretty safe if they're going through established uh, venues to buy these types of things as opposed to, you know, going on eBay or Craigslist or something like that? Uh, there's a certain level of vetting built in if they buy it through a reputable place. Yeah, of course. The uh, the biggest, I guess, uh, complaints to the FBI Cybercrime Center are centered around eBay fraud. So there's so many people selling things on eBay. Uh, I would say to anyone, if you're going to buy a Picasso on eBay, you should make sure that there's two S's in Picasso that it's signed. <laughs> you know? To help you digest this episode, here's a short interlude on the Nazis and stolen art. Adolf Hitler had been a painter in Vienna and had tried to get into the Academy of Fine Arts in that city on several occasions. He held strong views on art and culture, and when he became the Führer, these views shaped what was considered good and bad art by the German state, leading to the removal of 20,000 works of art from state-owned museums. He also saw art as a way to promote Nazi ideology. In the 1930s, they held the multi-year-long Great German Art Exhibition, which showcased art under Nazism. What is perhaps better known is the Degenerate Art Exhibition in Munich, which was a counterpoint to the Great German Art Exhibition, but which ironically attracted a lot more visitors. These views on art, aesthetics, culture, and the racial, ethnic, and religious background of the artists fanned out across Europe as one country after another fell to the German armies as the Nazis attempted to conquer the entire continent. The Nazis systematically looted art from occupied countries, targeting Jewish collectors in particular. With a view towards populating the planned Führer Museum, an epicentre of German art that was to be placed in his home city of Linz. As the war progresses, the Allies set up the Monuments, Fine Art and Archives programme, the so-called Monument Men, to preserve cultural heritage and locate art stolen by the Nazis. Much of this art was found in salt mines and castles, and the restitution of this art still takes place to this day, as exemplified by the September 2023 return of seven pieces of art from US museums and collectors to the family of Jewish artist 
Egon Schiller, who was arrested by the Nazis in Vienna and died in the Dachau concentration camp. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. You mentioned the fences. What are the fences like for in this kind of field? Is it, is it a different animal that you're dealing with? Um, I would imagine it's a pretty small universe of people. Um, are they generally well known, but sometimes they're inside jail, sometimes they're out, and sometimes they get caught and sometimes they don't? Or is it just, is it just all over the place and it's always very difficult to pin down? No, the fences basically are, usually they're people who don't know material stolen. So, you know, when we have a situation where somebody's out there stealing a $15 million Goya, there's no fence for that. Uh, those, those particular people are going to be trying to sell it on their own because there's nobody they can take it to. But, you know, uh, generally, uh, these are a lot of artworks and, and cultural heritage pieces are under 10000 you know, in value. And they go through secondary markets. They can go through small auction houses, you know, mom-and-pop auction houses. They don't do the background checks. You know, they make you sign a, a document that says you own it. Okay, that you have, you know, that you have good value for it, and you have ownership. But other than that, that's all they do because that gets them off the hook for stealing, selling stolen property, or they go through flea markets. These things can be sold there as well. You never know, you know. Uh, so 
there really are no actual, quote, fences for, for stolen art. Not like when you have a, uh, a chop house, you know, where you're, you're chopping up cars and selling parts. It doesn't really work that way with art. Not only that, you have to sell the art in good shape. You can't chop it up. The art comes from the integrity of the whole piece. Exactly. It comes from the, uh, the, yeah, the, 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 the provenance, the, the ownership, and the, um, uh, the history, authenticity, all those things are part of the legs of the stool that give it value. And if it's missing any of that, it has no value. You know, there must be some people out there who are high net worth individuals who, through a friend of a friend, find out there's a stolen Goya and they're thinking, you know what, it's worth $10 million. I can have it for a million. I'm going to put it in my house. No one's going to find it. I don't, I don't give a crap that it's stolen. I'm, getting a, I'm, get, I'm, I'm saving $9 million here. Does that happen? Well, you know, I can tell you that the, the whole idea of the, you know, super rich billionaire sitting there with uh, these stolen paintings in his basement where he stares at them at nighttime <laughs> with a glass of uh, scotch or a, a bourbon or a cognac. You're describing my life. There you go. That's <laughs> you, huh? <laughs> yeah, but, you're, but the ones you're staring at are all copies. <laughs> that's exactly. Okay. I bought them from the museum gift shop. There you go. <laughs> well, the thing with that is that uh, that, that whole concept comes from a famous, famous James Bond movie. Back in 1962, the first James Bond movie uh, that, was really, that was really successful was Dr. No, and people remember that. And at the time, there was a, a Goya painting that was actually stolen from the British Museum, and it had been taken the year before. So the, one of the producers of the, uh, of, the, of the movie read about that in the local newspapers in London. So he had a copy of that painting made, actually had it you know, reproduced, and he put it on an easel going into, James, into, into Dr. No's lairs. And as James Bond went into the lair, you might, you might remember, he looked at it for a second and, oh, and had that quizzical look on his face, like, I wondered where that went, you know? So ever since then, there's this Dr. No theory of the rich guy, the villain with all these paintings in his, in his basement. And, you know, funny thing, I've never seen that. I've seen it with smaller items that, like when Ernie stole those pieces from the historical society, but I've never seen a you know a really rich guy with uh, you know tens of millions of dollars worth of paintings in his basement. And the reason for that is it's expensive. It's like you said, if you can buy a ten million dollar painting, you still have to have the million to pay for it. And remember, you're not getting anything. You don't own it. So as soon as the authorities or anybody finds out about it, you're going to lose it, and maybe go to jail yourself. So it's really not worth it, is it? I mean, they they don't you know people who have that kind of wherewithal don't want to waste their money on something they can't even own or show. And so that's why I've never actually seen that. Ultimately, too, just to finish the story on James Bond, uh, at the end of the filming of the movie, that painting was stolen. Really? <laughs> it went wow. missing. Yeah. That's a great movie as well. I love Dr. No. Dr. No, yeah. The yeah. painting went missing. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> That's incredible. So when you set up the um, the FBI unit that looks into this, I'm just wondering, was part of your inspiration, I know that the Italians, they had the Carabinieri Art Squad, I believe that was set up in 1969, and then there's the, which you've already, and you've already mentioned this next one, the Scotland Yard Antiquities Unit, which was also set up in the, the late 60s. Were those two things that were on your radar and you went to your bosses and said, listen, we need to replicate these other types of units here in, in the United States. Yeah, well, what happened was, um, after I got back from um, 
doing the undercover operation in, in Sweden, we realized that, that we needed to have a unit set up because we didn't have a professional art crime unit. Basically, uh, every office at the FBI has a, had a, a crime unit, a crime task force or a squad for a property crime, including jewelry and, and cars and that type of thing. But no, no, nothing for art. So when I got back, I had worked with the OCBC in Paris, which is the art crime unit in Paris. Also, the there's two squads in Madrid, the Scotland Yard Antiques Antiquity Squad, also the uh, Carbonieri, which has 300 members. There's 300 investigators. That's a law. Yeah, well, you know, everything on six inches <laughs> in the ground in Italy is uh, cultural heritage. <laughs> so there's a lot going on there. So I, when I got back, I, I went to headquarters and I said, you know, we need a unit to do this. And they agreed. Uh, it was good publicity. That's one of the things that when you recover a Goya or a Picasso, you get a lot of publicity. And the FBI needed good publicity at the time. So they thought that was a good idea. And we said so we were able to create that unit. And how many people work in the unit, Robert? Well, as I said, when I first started, I mean, when we came up with it, it was eight agents uh, from around the country. I was surprised. You know, we put out a general call. It was uh, five years of experience with three years of criminal investigative uh, experience. And uh, I didn't expect to get too many calls, to be honest with you. But we got over 75 applications for the unit. And we only had room for eight nationwide. So, you know, we had to really call them out, so to speak. Today, I think there's more than 20. Uh, it's grown into that. I retired in 2008, three years after the beginning. And today there's more than 20 and they're, they're going strong. So I'm really proud to see that that's continuing. And do you still keep contact with them? Uh, some of the guys that uh, I picked to begin with are still there. Okay. <laughs> you know, they never leave. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so yeah, we keep in contact. I, I work with them, you know, when I, I still have my company, Robert Whitman Incorporated. And I started that when I retired. And we do investigation. We do, you know, art collection management. We do authenticity and provenance uh, reviews. Um, we do security reviews for museums. I recently did the uh, security survey for the National Gallery of Art in Washington. And we do a lot of expert witness testimony. And when we do these investigations, we take it up to the point where we have all the evidence and we turn it over. And sometimes we do it to the FBI. Other times we'll go to Homeland Security Investigations, whichever agency is more appropriate. In this world, do you run up against intelligence agencies? So, for example, is North Korean intelligence uh, or Russian intelligence somehow part of this world? To launder money, um, are they at all involved in this kind of world? Well, it's not so much the intelligence. I would say the unintelligence agencies. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. Of, the, the terrorist groups in the Middle East, you know, were uh, fans of Taliban, the uh, uh, Al-Qaeda, the different groups were, were very much into taking artifacts and selling them on the market to finance their operations. So they had many different types of financial operations going, money laundering, that type of thing. But one of them was stealing artifacts digging up artifacts and moving them through an underground system to try to raise more money. So that was something that they were doing. Um, it, you know, it was part of the intelligence operation for those groups. Uh, not sure Russia or North Korea um, is dealing in intelligence when it comes to art and artifacts. There was one uh, interesting, I guess, program back in the 1950s where the CIA was actually um, promoting... Abex art around the world in order to uh, compete 
with Russia's art. And so it was kind of an interesting thing that they were, you know, supporting some of the uh, artists like Jackson Pollock and whatnot, you know, in order to, like I say, compete with them. So, I mean, I guess it can be used for, uh, for that type of purpose. And when you were doing these investigations, how much would you tap into all source intelligence? We would do Title III wiretaps, you know, uh, listening to actors involved. Um, you know, I had one case where I was working with the OCBC in Paris, and we had uh, some um, in- individuals in Miami who were offering uh, to, to sell me uh, pieces that were stolen from the Isabella Stark Gardner Museum in 1990. That was a big heist there. And these guys had supposedly these pieces in uh, Marseille. And so we were working with them with wiretaps and working with the French government to uh, identify who these individuals were. Also to find out, as I say, who they were talking to. Uh, they were talking to individuals in Basque country, in Spain as well. So these, these groups are international and they work all together to try to raise money and steal. Ultimately, they said that they had more than 30 stolen paintings uh, all uh, for me to buy, and it, uh, all these different groups from around Spain, uh, France and Spain had put them together. So they were looking for a, a buyer. And so uh, ultimately, we did recover two Picassos that were stolen in Paris worth about $60 million, and four uh, paintings stolen from the Nice Museum at gunpoint that we were able to recover at the same time through that group. So these intelligence agencies all worked together to, uh, to, to, to be able to do these things. I'm wondering, is there any current missing item or case that you would love to see solved? Well, the, the largest, uh, I guess the largest single property crime, I'm talking about property, in the United States was a art theft from the Isabel Stork Garner Museum, 1990, in Boston. Uh, on on St. Patrick's Day night, two individuals dressed as Boston police officers, they tricked the two guards that were inside the museum to let them in. And, uh, of course, they weren't cops, they were thieves. They tied these two uh, two guards up, and they went around the museum for about an hour and some odd minutes, and they stole 13 objects of art. Uh, one was a Rembrandt seascape, the only seascape Rembrandt that's known to have done, called The Storm Over the Sea of Galilee. And the other, another piece was a uh, Vermeer. It's uh, called The Concert. It's the only one of 35 in the world. It's the only one that's missing. So the total value of that heist that night was $300 million. So we're talking about a heist of property one time, $300 million. Well, today, fast forward 30 years later, they've never been recovered. And the total value today is about $500 million because of inflation in the art market. And none of those pieces have ever come back. So I would say that, you know, I would be very interested to see where they are. I think that the individuals that probably did the theft are not around anymore, but it would be great to be able to recover the paintings themselves because we're talking about, you know, a Vermeer, and a Rembrandt seascape, the only one in the world. That seascape sounds incredible over the Sea of Galilee, and that's still missing. That is still missing, yeah. It's the uh, storm over the Sea of Galilee. It was the early hours of March 18, 1990, in Boston, 1.20 a.m., the city's celebration of St. Patrick's Day was winding down, and two guards at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum were about to find themselves involved in the world's single largest art theft. The two thieves, disguised as police officers, tricked their way into the museum by telling the guards that they were dispatched to investigate a Paddy's Day-related disturbance. 
Once inside the museum, they handcuffed the guards, duct-taped over their eyes and head, and led them down to the basement, where the thieves attached the handcuffs to a steam pipe and workbench, declaring, gentlemen, this is a robbery. With the guards trapped in the basement, the two thieves worked quickly in the museum, removing 13 works of art, some of which being among the museum's most prized possessions. Interestingly, they left behind the most valuable painting in the collection, Titian's Rape of Europa. In total, the theft now values over $500 million. As they left the museum, the thieves took the camera footage of their entrance and removed all records of the security alarms and motion sensors that they set off. They left the guards bound in the basement, and they would not be found until hours later, when the next shift arrived for duty. From start to finish, the heist lasted only 81 minutes. The thieves have never been identified, and the 13 works of priceless art have not yet been recovered. Today, the museum field and FBI alike still wonder the reason behind this theft. In the thousands of pages of evidence, intelligence, and analysis gathered, there is no clear motivation of the thieves. There is no clear pattern amongst the pieces stolen, and remember, they left behind the most valuable piece. Was it purely for the money, maybe for the glory, or some other sinister plot? Well, we may never know. Currently, the museum is offering a $10 million award for information leading to the recovery of the pieces stolen. And to show you just how serious this business is, the only government reward that has ever exceeded this amount is the $25 million bounty offered for Osama bin Laden. Tell us a little bit more about your undercover work. I find that really fascinating. Uh, so you were undercover for for a long period of time. Tell us a little bit more about that. Um, the types of places you went. Did you enjoy it? Um, I'm, I'm assuming it must have been quite dangerous and scary at certain periods of time as well. Well, there was times when uh, you know uh, people were threatening. You know, threatening to. Uh, you know, try to try to kill me. <laughs> okay. No other way well, to say it, right? That's yeah, a thing. But we talked about it because I'm here to tell you about it. So it worked out okay. Uh, you know, we were undercover. I was undercover in Miami, uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, you know, St. Louis, in the States, uh, Barcelona, Marseille, uh, Paris. Uh, but somebody had to do it, right? I mean, it's terrible work. <laughs> you know, who wants to be undercover in Paris or Marseille and yeah, Barcelona uh, and Madrid, you know? Poor you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Everybody feels sorry for me. <laughs> and so was there ever any time where you were investigating something and the 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 legs of the story ended up reaching to all kinds of places? So you start off, you're just looking for a work of art and then the next thing you know, you're you're in different cities, you're dealing with organized crime groups i'm just trying to get a sense of uh you know when you when you stumble into something and then you realize that you've only seen the tip of the iceberg and there's so much else that's going on oh sure anytime you 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 know get involved with uh any type of organized activities it's uh you know there's always going to be what we call a gateway crime so the original art theft is just a gateway crime because that that group's doing everything else there's very few specialized art theft groups 
most of these gangs that are involved in doing these kinds of robberies are doing, you know, car theft, they're selling drugs, they're moving uh, illicit arms, that type of thing. So they're into everything, armed robbery. And they just happened to do an art heist too, which is what we call the gateway crime. It got us into the group. Um, just one example of that was the, uh, the the group in Miami that I was telling you about earlier. That, that uh, what I was doing, I was undercover to try to, to uh, obtain the Stormer of the Sea of Galilee, the Rembrandt from the Gardner heist, as well as the Vermeer. Those were the two I was chasing. Uh, we had made a deal to buy those for thirty million. Okay, and this group out of Marseille, who supposedly had these paintings. Uh, they came back to us and said, okay, we've also got these four Picassos. Those two paintings they were talking about, just the tip of the iceberg, the two Picassos, the four pieces from the Nice Museum in France, all stolen. So we we didn't know anything about those until we got into the case, and all of a sudden it starts to develop. You go further and further. So there's always more than what you start out with. And when you were going undercover, could you give us an, an example of when you went undercover that particularly sticks out in your memory? Maybe it's a, an example that you use when you're giving your lectures and, and discussing your various courses. Yeah, well, you know, we, sometimes you want to talk about mistakes that you might use. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny because uh, I, was, I was always a uh, art authenticator uh, for a mob group or an art professor uh, and I try to use those types of covers because it's less violent than being, say, a, than, a, than a thief, you know, or, a, or, or even a shady dealer who was not involved in, to, in, in uh, violence, but more in selling the material. So um, uh, it was interesting that uh, I wasn't worried so much about guns and knives. The bad guys had them, but I didn't need them because uh, they wanted to do a deal with me and they wanted money. And that's that's what I offered, right? So so getting involved with, with you know killing me wasn't a good idea because I didn't want to get the money. So I just you know I remember mistakes that were made. I, I can remember one time you know uh, generally I use cash for everything, but I would take somebody out in and say a fraud case or a forgery case, and at that point because it's not an organized crime group, you know you would use a credit card. And I'll never forget I was in a in a cafe in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I was working a, a group, and we had dinner. And so I took out my credit card, and I paid for the dinner, my undercover credit card. It wasn't my real name. But when I got the bill, I signed my real name, not oh, thinking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just how you sign a credit card bill, mm -hmm. you just don't think about it. Well, I signed my real name. I thought, well, how do I fix that? You know, it's a different name that's on the actual credit card. So one of the, you know, one of the, uh, I guess, rules of working undercover is always to use your real first name. So if you're Robert, you're Robert. You know, you're Bob. You're not going to change that. And the reason for that is if you happen to be in a position where someone knows you and they say, hey, Bob, they call you, that it doesn't blow your cover. And that actually happened to me in the Philadelphia airport a few times. So it, it, it can be a situation where you use the first name, but I didn't have the same last name. So in this case, I had to try and really quickly scratch out the other name and put the uh, undercover last name in. But I never did it but once. It only happened one time, and I learned my lesson to pay attention. You know, so these, these things can happen. These are just small things that, that you know, uh, people do and don't think about it, and it could be a problem. And your undercover last name, that would, that would change around depending on the operation? I tried to keep it the same as long as I could. At one okay. point, uh, it was blown, though, because I did a case, and it was that Santa Fe case, and the uh, individuals were interviewed by the newspapers after they were indicted, and they, they told the newspapers my undercover name. So they kind of blew my cover. 
So Can you tell point, us what it was? Yeah, it was, it was Bob Clay, C-L-A-Y. So okay. they, they said, you know, this guy named Bob Clay came into our shops, and uh, he was an FBI agent. And so, uh, you know, that, that was it. That was in the newspapers that kind of killed the, uh, killed the undercover name. So I changed it. But I changed it to Bob Shea, S-H-A-Y. And that way I could remember it. After <laughs> using Clay, I could remember Shea because it rhymed. But yet it had no, uh, no resemblance to the other name. And tell us a little bit more about living your cover. How did you, what was your persona? How did you build it up? And, you know, did you go to the FBI and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to be someone that's uh, involved in these paintings and high value pieces of cultural property? I'm going to need a yoga boss. Uh, uh, I'm going to need, a, <laughs> I'm going to need, a, 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 you know, really fancy watch, et cetera. Or would, would that not fly with your bosses? Now the the uh, the undercover unit has uh, has access to all that. I mean, if you need to if you need to buy certain clothes, you can you know, you can get the funds to buy clothes. And when it comes to jewelry, they have all kind of jewelry and watches, that type of thing. They're all seizures. You know, have been forfeited to the government. So there's there's vaults full of that stuff uh, to be used. Uh, in one case, I had gotten some uh, uh, watches, and I needed to uh, have diamonds to pay my bad guys. So we basically took the diamonds out of watches that we that the FBI had, had uh, seized and had them popped out and used those to actually pay people. So you know the watches served double purpose. Um, yeah, and I had a I had a twenty five thousand dollar Rolex that I would wear occasionally with full of diamonds. You know when I wanted to, when I wanted to prove that type of thing. Uh, I didn't usually do that too often though because that makes you a target of being robbed and not by the bad guys you're working with just on the street. So why invite that? You know, that wasn't something <laughs> that I really needed to do. Um, so I, I didn't plan. You know, another another tenet of working undercover for me, and I wouldn't say it's for everybody, but for me, was to keep everything as real as possible. Because, uh, you know, like, for example, if you have three children, you tell you say you had three children. And you could say they're for real first names because their last names weren't known. So the idea there is that, you know, some of these cases, you might be undercover for six months, one point, I was undercover for three years in a case. And, you know, how do you remember what you said three years ago if it's a lie? So if you keep it close to, to the vest, you keep it straight, you keep yourself honest, you know, um, it's much easier to remember facts than it is lies. And tell us a little bit more about Priceless. What prompted you to write the book? Yeah, when I retired in 2008 from the Bureau, like I said, I started my own company, Robert Whitman Incorporated, where we do all these other types of uh art duties, you know. Uh, but I also wrote two books. The first one was called Priceless, How I Went Undercover to Rescue the World's Stolen Treasures. And that's a New York Times bestseller. It's in 15 languages around the world. And basically, that's a memoir of my career at the FBI talking about different cases. Uh, it's chronological from the beginning to the till I retired. And I, maybe I highlighted a dozen different uh, cases, maybe 10 undercover cases talking about the specifics Places like Poland, Warsaw, Poland, and, and Denmark, and uh, Spain, uh, Peru, Ecuador. And so uh, it's, it's uh, I, I guess the motivation for writing the book was to get the word out how important cultural heritage is. It really is important to make the public realize that this is an important program that should be supported by law enforcement and by, you know, and by both local and federal. The second book is called The Devil's Diary. It's uh, Alfred Rosenberg and the Stolen Secrets of the Third Reich. I wrote that in 2016. 
And that's about a recovery we did for the U.S. Holocaust Museum. After I retired from the Bureau, the museum contacted my company and asked us to do an investigation and try to recover a diary that was written between 1935 and 1946 by Alfred Rosenberg. Rosenberg uh, was the chief civil scientist for the Third Reich, for the Nazis. Uh, he met uh, Adolf Hitler in 1919 when Hitler was just infiltrating the Nazis to see what they were doing. And in fact, he was the one who created, in many ways, he created Adolf Hitler. He's the guy who had all the theories about the Aryan nation, the ladder, step ladder of races, the destruction of the Jews. That was all Alfred Rosenberg's idea. So, uh, and from 1935 to 46, he wrote this 400-page diary, which was recovered by Patton's troops at the end of the war and was used at the Nuremberg trial. Rosenberg was one of the first 10 Nazis that was executed after the Nuremberg trials. He was hung in October 1946. The diary went missing. One of the prosecutors at the Nuremberg trial stole it. <laughs> Took it back to Pennsylvania, believe it or not, Philadelphia. And he, uh, it was never transcribed never translated. And so it was a mystery of what was in it. And remember now, this is a, a first-person narrative of the highest reaches of the Third Reich, discussions with Adolf Hitler. And so, and Rosenberg had that access. So uh, the, the Holocaust Museum wanted to try to get this diary back. It belonged to the National Archives. But they were interested in seeing what he wrote, you know, in that 400 pages. Because believe it or not, I didn't know this, Nowhere is it actually written that Adolf Hitler was part of the Holocaust. You know, he, they always kept everything at arm's length. Like at the Wannsee Conference, where it was decided, they used their deputies. None of them went. So it was all about plausible deniability. And so they, the museum wanted to see if Rosenberg actually wrote in his diary, today we discuss the Holocaust. And it was really close to that, but not specific. But he says things a lot like that in the diary. And a lot of other interesting things, too. So the diary was found? We found the diary ultimately after a, a three-month investigation. We got it in Lewiston, New York, near, uh, near Niagara Falls. Um, and, and the book basically covered... The first third of the book is the investigation to recover it. The rest of the book is what's in the diary itself. And, you know, what we did was we put it into context. What was, what was happening during the war and what his diary notations were saying. So it's kind of, it's a very interesting thing to hear his take on what was going on in actuality. That's incredible. I remember the Hitler diaries. There were these diaries that came out. I'm sure you've heard of them. Um, and they were, they, they were, were fake. Ri- yeah, they were fake, <laughs> but they, but they got uh, an expert to uh, verify them. And it was the Regis Professor of History at Oxford, who's a pretty unimpeachable source. Uh, and he said they were the real deal, but they weren't. And I don't think has a reputation ever really recovered from that. Yeah, I mean that's that's the problem when you uh, when you pull somebody in who makes an absolute decision, you know it could be a problem if they're not right. Yeah, and I'm just wondering, do you have another book that you're working on, or or anything that our listeners could look forward to? Always looking. Well, I think the listeners should pick up the first two. Of course, <laughs> they're yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> Priceless and uh, the Devil's Diary. The Devil's Diary is actually in thirty languages now. It's in every every really? country from yeah from Portugal all the way to Turkey. And also Korea, China, Taiwan, and Japan. But you know, I, I, right this minute, I'm not writing anything uh, new. Um, it takes a lot of work. 
<laughs> it's not easy. And it's the type of thing where you really have to have a, a, a drive, a reason for doing it. Well, thanks ever so much for speaking to me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I've learned a lot and it's been a really enjoyable chat. And um, if you ever come to DC, please let us know and we'd be happy to give you a tour of the museum. I would love to, Andrew. Thank you. It'd be fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL SpyCast. If you go to our page at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond, and my podcast content partner is Erin Dietrich. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Von III, Emily Coletta, Emily Renz, Afu Anokwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, and Jen Ivan. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. Spy Museum.